The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Some of the time I am, yes. I am certainly about history because I think in, in, in his, if you're studying history at all, you've got to be looking at something other than the received wisdom because the received wisdom is very often used to bolster positions that prevent us from moving forward, that preserve old resentments rather than create new possibilities. The fact that you're writing a blog johnbruton.com and you do so on a regular basis. Does that suggest that retirement doesn't sit easily with you, that having left active politics, uh, that you actually just really can't let it go? No, I, I, I like writing. I mean, actually, if I've completed something, if I've written, for instance, this morning before I came in here, I completed a review of a book about the famine. You, you know, there's a certain sense of satisfaction, which I'm sure you feel yourself on a grander scale, having wrote a major biography. You, there's a certain sense of satisfaction you get from having written something, having got it out there, put it there. That's more the motivation, uh, if there's a personal motivation involved, uh, than any wish to sort of, uh, no wish to to re-enter the political arena. But is there any sense that you left politics prematurely, in in retrospect now? Because you were a relatively young Taoiseach and the leadership of Fine Gael went from you at the turn of the century. So do you feel that perhaps you left it too early? Well, I had more than 10 years as leader of Fine Gael, uh, and that's you know, not as long as the current leader has had, but he, he's been very successful in it. Uh, but 10 years is a good long time, and I was very fortunate to get the offer. As you know, uh, after I had ceased to be leader and had been re-elected to the Dáil, I got the offer of being the European Union's ambassador in Washington, which is a hugely important role in my mind in terms of explaining how the European Union works to Americans because they need to deal with the European Union. It's now 28 countries, 500 million people. And, you know, it's a reality that needs to be understood by people outside Europe. And I valued the opportunity of doing that. And since I've returned uh, from from that in 2009, I've been involved in various uh, business uh, endeavours and also in writing so you don't miss the politics? No. I mean, in a, in a sense, we're all politicians, all citizens who express an opinion uh, about anything are doing so in order to influence the debate. So in a sense, every citizen has an obligation to be a, a sort of politician, but not an elected or paid politician. Well, you actually also mention in the book a little bit about the public attitude towards elected politicians and the degree of perhaps cynicism that is expressed towards them. Just talk to us a little bit more about that. I think the cynicism derives from the fact that um, the public sometimes don't understand what politics is for and sometimes the media don't attempt to fill that gap in their knowledge. Politics is for dealing with the things about which agreement is impossible by other means. It's not about technical questions, uh, only where there are different technical arguments on either side of an issue and somebody has to make the decision. Now, in a democracy, the view is that the best people to make the ultimate decisions are people who are elected, who can be therefore unelected at the next election, rather than appointed bureaucrats. Uh, because things about which people profoundly disagree, whether there's a clash of values, are best decided uh, in a democracy by, by elected people. But I think that is th- that understanding doesn't exist in some minds and people feel that, well, the politician should come up with a solution that everyone will agree with. And if they don't, they're failing as politicians. Well, the precise opposite is the truth. 
the only things that politicians deal with are the things about which people can't agree. And therefore, you know, politicians are inevitably going to be controversial and criticised and sometimes personally vilified. But that's part of the job. That's the service that politicians provide to the people in a democracy. How thick a skin did you have as a politician in dealing with such criticism? I, I had a thin skin, but I had a very good sort of healing mechanism. Uh, if something not, not very pleasant was written about me uh, in the morning's newspaper, I would be very upset that day. Um, but by the following morning, assuming I got a good night's sleep, I'd have forgotten about it. Or forgiven it? Just forgotten about it? Well, put it aside, it? should we say. <laughs> Why, do you bear any grudges? No, I hope not, uh, because I, I believe, as the book argues, about faith and politics, including religious faith, and our obligation, and uh, my, I believe, believe my obligation as a Christian is, is not to hold grudges, it is to forgive and forget. Your Christianity, your Catholicism, clearly is exceptionally important to you, but there seems to be a groundswell of opinion, particularly amongst younger people, that a separation between church and state, particularly in the area of education, is essential. And that seems to be something that you're fighting against. Well, I probably wouldn't have written anything about religion and politics at all if I was producing a book 20 years ago because it didn't need to be done because at that time people accepted that it was reasonable for people to be influenced in their political activity by their understanding of the values that they derive from their religious belief. And 20 years ago, people would have believed that if children are to be given a good ethical um, upbringing, that often that is helped by their having a religious faith because if you behave ethically and believe in the next life, you believe that there will be an accounting for unethical behaviour that you might have undertaken at the end of your life when you move on to the next stage. That's part of Christian belief uh, and other religions as well. And therefore, religion, if you like, supports ethics and supports uh, ethics in children as they're brought up. That would have been accepted 20 years ago. It's increasingly uh, in, in, in controversial and I disagree. But I imagine those. an awful lot of non-believers believe that they too are and capable I, of being ethical people. Too, and I accept that fully. Uh, but I think that for those who do have religious belief, the view that you will have to give an account of yourself and we believe in accountability in contemporary life, well, in the things that you are not asked to publicly account for, in that you do privately, you will also have to give account for them if you're a Christian believer but why should that be at, in, 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 at, at the point of death. But why should that be part of the state school curriculum? If people want, for example, faith instruction or faith formation, should that not be something that is done privately outside of the state-funded school system? But we don't have a state school system. We have a system which, and this was a controversy that was fought out in the 1830s, where Ireland insisted that schools... Uh, Irish politicians, elected politicians, insisted that the schools would be religiously managed. So we have Church of Ireland schools, we, we have Jewish schools, we have Muslim schools, and we have Catholic schools, Catholic managed schools. But funded uh, by the state? But the teachers are funded by the state. Some of the funding is provided by the local faith communities, but most of the funding comes from the state. But, I mean, the state has a constitution which acknowledges the existence of God. The state acknowledges that religious belief is important. It guarantees freedom of religion. But if people are to freely practice their religion, they must understand it. Now, in a modern life where both parents are working, the idea that education in religion could be removed from the school prompts the question, well, if 
people are not going to learn about their religion while they're at school. When and where are they going to learn in it? In the home? Is that in not the, home, the place? Is that the not home, the place? Is it not responsibility well, of parents in, rather than the schools for religious uh, instruction well, or formation? It's not practical because, as probably you know well, most most um, most most uh, parents are working and are getting home at you know six or seven in the evening after the children have arrived home. The children are, have to do their homework for school the following day, and the idea that you know. Uh, the only time that really religious education could be provided outside school hours would be on, say, on Saturdays or on Sundays. But increasingly, children want to take part in sport on those days. And the parents but, if the want religion, them to, but if the religion was important enough to the parents, I, I, they would insist know, on putting I'm, an hour aside I'm, or whatever at the I'm, weekend to do it. I'm making an argument for religion being important because I think it is a very important ethical foundation. But it's it would be easier for everybody. And if we believe religion is important, and I think as a majority of people, even those who don't maybe believe in it themselves, believe religion is important for the cohesion of society. We need to inculcate faith uh, in the time that children have. Now, people complain about, is it 30, hour, 30 minutes a day? We devote, I think it's two and a half hour, uh, hours per day to Irish uh, and a large... Should we? Uh, well, I think arguably not as much. If people are complaining about not there not being enough time for science or not enough time for mathematics... Or physical education. Uh, or physical education. Uh, you know, perhaps we could look at the amount of time we spent on languages, on English and Irish. We spend more time on teaching languages, I think, in the primary schools than most other countries do because we... But then how do you accommodate the people who do not want religious instruction in the schools? Well, one needs perhaps to develop ethical programmes for them that are not faith-based. That can be done. I mean, I think obviously people need to be accommodated uh, and and children and the wishes of their parents need to be accommodated. But that, that we should be finding a practical solution to that rather than suggesting that religion has no place in education, which seems to be the the argument uh, that is being advanced in some quarters. I need to take a break. I want to talk to you more about the European Union, which is features prominently in your book, and a bit as well about commemorating 1916 and 1914 when we come back after this short break. John Bruton, former Taoiseach, remains with us. This is The Last Word with Matt Cooper on Today FM. You invite them. No, it's better if it comes from you. Really? Do I have to? Oh, for goodness sake, just call them. Larry wasn't keen on having his girlfriend's parents around for Christmas nibbles. Hmm, what do you call this stuff again? Antipasti. It's delicious. But then again, it never had Christmas nibbles before. Deluxe Antipasti from just one ninety nine. Share a little bit of magic with friends and family this Christmas. Lidl choose to live a little. AXA customers get everyday savings in travel, retail, fashion and motor outlets. There's no need to accumulate points. Just insure with AXA and our AXA Plus loyalty program gives you instant savings when you shop. Toy Superstores, we're keeping all our toys and games awake a little longer from now until Christmas. So now you can do your shopping right up until 11pm in-store from Monday to Friday. Pop in-store until 11pm Monday to Friday or visit smithstoys.com anytime you like. Smith's Toy Superstores, open until 11pm. Selected stores only. When I picked around. 
UFC 194 Aldo v McGregor exclusively live this Saturday on the Satanta Sports Pack. Here at Christmas Limited, we wouldn't give naughty kids coal for Christmas. It's far too valuable. <laughs> Nobody likes Christmas Limited. That's why Meteor is unlimiting your Christmas with up to 80 euro off the latest super fast 4G smartphones and unlimited calls and six months double data for just 20 euro top up. Have an unlimited Christmas with Meteor. Just go in store or to meteor.ie. Subject to availability, sign up to our simplicity plan and opt in before January 11, 2016. See meteor.ie for terms. Feeling depressed? Blue? Do your friends laugh at you rather than with you? Then come laugh at us. We don't mind. Come see that lad from the fear, Fred Coop. And Republic of Telly's Kevin McGarren. At our doubleheader show, When, when Two Become one. one. On the 27th of February at Ficker Street. Two of Ireland's best comedians. Within their price range. Featuring a night of stand-up comedy. Music. Secrets. Live chicken. Free sandwiches. No homework. And that's a guarantee. When Two Become One, February 27th at Ficker Street. Tickets from €22 Euro on sale now from Ticketmaster and usual outlets nationwide. The Last Word, sponsored by 3Business. Your total communications partner. 3 works for business. Welcome back. John Bruton, the former Taoiseach, uh, former leader of Fine Gael, is with us. His new book is called Faith and Politics, which is a collection of essays on politics, economics, history and religion. I think it's fair to say you are an European Union enthusiast, uber enthusiast, one of the most enthusiastic politicians in the country about Europe, and not just because you were the EU ambassador to Washington for a while. But what happens if Britain decides to leave the European Union? Should Ireland remain in the European Union if Britain goes? It'll make life difficult for Ireland if Britain leaves, but I think we should remain in the European Union. Why? Given that culturally we're closer to Britain and to the United States of America, to English language speaking countries, closer to Boston than Berlin, as Mary Harney once said, uh, culturally, also economically, that the vast bulk of our trade is with those countries. Why stick with the European Union, continental Europe, if Britain is not part of the EU? We should stick with the European Union because the European Union is a good thing for Europe and we're part of Europe. And because Britain, if it were to leave the European Union, would be making a profound mistake in terms of what's good for Britain and what's good for Europe. And I don't think we should abet them in the mistake that they may make. But why would it be a mistake? Even if Britain leaves the European Union, it's heading to be, if it stayed in the European Union, the biggest, strongest single economy within the European Union, despite not being part of the euro. Well, I I think that we must put this in context. The European Union was created, and previous Conservative leaders like Edward Heath understood this. The European Union was created to build a structure of peace in Europe uh, by making the countries of Europe, the nations of Europe, so dependent on one another, mutually dependent, that they could never afford physically or materially to go to war with one another ever again. Now, if you... And the idea that you know Britain should be indifferent to what happens on the continent of Europe and should not take part in trying to build a structured peace in Europe is belied by history. Britain has been repeatedly dragged into continental European wars. In eighteen in the eighteen in the eighteen eighteen fourteen eighteen fifteen we had the Battle of Waterloo. Britain was involved in a long European war prior to that, the Crimean War, the First World War the Second World War, on each of those occasions, turbulence on the continent of Europe led to British and Irish people losing their lives in very large numbers. So Britain has a vested interest in preserving the peace of Europe. And the European Union is the way 
the way of doing that that we have available to us at the present time. It's not perfect. And perhaps... But can I suggest you it's far from perfect at present. I'll give you two concrete examples of how the European Union has failed. One is in dealing with the refugee crisis at present, an ongoing failure, and the other is the economic catastrophe of 2008 in which countries like Ireland were hung out to dry when there was no sense of collegiality and we were left to carry the cost to save the euro and to save the European Union. Well, let's look at the counterfactual. Suppose there was no European Union and those two things happened. Supposing there had been a collapse in banks in one or two or three or four countries and the European Union didn't exist, what we would have had would have been a global catastrophe, sudden freezing of money all over Europe. Now, thanks to the European Union's existence, we did have a mechanism. But it was the euro's existence that caused the crisis. No, it wasn't. I mean, that's just not the case. The, The reality is we had, through lax monetary policy, initially in the United States... Uh, to overcome the dot-com bubble and the millennium bug and all those things, we had far too much money pumped into the system. Likewise, that was being followed in Europe, and we had that, that led to overlending by banks, which ultimately led to bubbles, which ultimately and inevitably led to a crash, which was entirely foreseeable. Now, without the European Union, we would have had a disorderly series of mutual devaluations. Uh, vicious competition between states to ensure that other people took the pain rather than themselves. And we would have had possibly a repeat of the 1930s, where you had exactly that competitive devaluation in the early 1930s, leading to war in the late 1930s. That didn't happen, thanks to the existence of the European Union. Admittedly, the European Union hadn't already made plan to deal with the problem immediately it arose. It had to deal with it on the job, so to speak, but it did and has dealt with it. At Ireland's expense. And then subsequently Greece's expense. Ireland is now growing at a rate of, is it 7%? uh, Well, that's if you believe the statistics. Well, okay, okay, let's say 5%. It's still very, very good. And it shows that thanks to our being helped through that, Issue. Now, I agree with you. The terms were not as they ought to have been. The, the entire rest of the world should have participated in rescuing the Irish banks, not just the Germans. Remember, when Greece failed and when Ireland was about to fail, the people who were going to lose were not just German banks, but American banks and British banks. Now, neither and America. We bailed them and, out. Just a second. But neither America nor Britain made any contribution to helping us to overcome our problems. Well, yes, Britain did we, give us a big loan in 2010. Well, well, in Greece, the British didn't help the Greeks. Okay. But they, gave, they, they helped Ireland. They helped Seven Ireland. Billion but they have said that they want to say, in the way the euro has worked, is to work in future. This is part of their negotiating wishes. But they're not going to make any contribution to any difficulties that arise in the euro. They want, in other words, the reverse of the Boston Tea Party. They want representation without taxation. Talk to me about the refugee crisis on Europe's failure to deal with that. Well, refugee policy is a matter for the individual member states. Uh, It's the individual member states that have an obligation to refugees. That is not something that has been you know, taken over by the European Union. We haven't allowed the European Union to take on the powers that it needs uh, and Should the resources that it needs. Yes. Would you give more powers to Europe? In the matter of dealing with refugees on a collective basis over the whole of Europe, I think it's the only solution. The idea that refugees can all be accommodated uh, in the first country in which they land 
uh, by in Greece or Italy is unrealistic. I mean, it's, it's just Greece can't afford it. Well, how we many refugees should we take in Ireland? In spirit of Christianity, how many Muslim refugees should we take into the country? Well, I don't think we should single out Muslim refugees. I think uh, it's fair to say that Christians uh, are some among the refugees yep. as well. Um, but we should take refugees because we have obligations dating back to the Refugee Convention of, I think it's 1951, which we signed solemnly after the war, all of us, because we realised that you know what had happened in the wake of the of the first war, Second World War, where ref- huge numbers of refugees were were starving in 1947. Uh, and for uh, in a very one of the worst winters in European history, people were starving and freezing to death because there was no adequate provision made for them. And we decided at that time that we would create an international obliga- convention, which we adhered to, to look after the refugees. Now, in in the in modern conditions, that means looking after the Syrians. There's no doubt that people coming from Syria are refugees in the literal meaning of the term. There is a war in Syria. Huge numbers are being. Killed. Now, I, the ideal solution would be to find a way of stopping that war, but it's very difficult because there are so many different parties involved. But the non-governmental organisations this week said we should take 22,000 refugees. That was a number they put on it. The government has committed at present to taking 4,000. Lots of people in this country are arguing, well, we should be looking after our own first, our own housing crisis, our homeless crisis before we take refugees. So how many should we well, take? Well, this is a matter of degree. I mean, of course there's hardship in, in this country, but the hardship... That's being that are being experienced by people who are drowning in the Mediterranean because they're so desperate to get away from Syria, is on a different scale to the hardship that's being experienced here in Ireland. And, and we've got to, you know, you've got to, there are such a thing as rights, but there are also relativities and degrees of hardship that need to be taken into account. I would err on the larger number side, I, I, I but I think all the countries in Europe, including Poland and Lithuania and places like that, they should be taking their share of the refugees too, not just Greece and Italy. Okay, we're running low on time, but I do want to talk to you for a little while about 1916 and indeed 1914. How will you commemorate the Easter Rising of 1916? Will you take part in official state celebrations as a former Taoiseach? I would like to see uh, 1916 remembered in a way that remembers all of the victims. Remember, there were the majority of the people who were killed in 1916 were civilians who had not chosen to take part in a rebellion, but they suffered either at the hands of the volunteers who were shooting people who didn't stop at checkpoints that they had set up, or members of the police who were unarmed and known to be unarmed who were shot dead by the volunteers at the gates of Dublin Castle, for example. And I would like to see all those people the police, uh, the British soldiers who were killed, a third of whom were Irish, Irish people at home on leave. I'd like to see those people remembered by name, as well as the volunteers, as well as the signatories, because most of those other people didn't have a choice in the matter, whereas the volunteers who decided to occupy the GPO and other standpoints, uh, strong points, they did have a choice. Um, they knew what they were doing. How much celebration do you think should there be of those who regard who are regarded as having made a blood sacrifice for Ireland? I don't agree with blood sacrifice. I think blood sacrifice in a divided community, as Ireland still is, with two major uh, religious and national traditions, if you like, in Ireland, blood sacrifice does not uh, 
cohere towards solving that sort of a problem, the Irish problem. And we should remember that before the rebellion was initiated, we already had home rule on the statute book, home rule, which had been fought for for 40 years, finally became the law of the land. But hadn't been implemented. No, because the war had started and, you know, the idea of, you know, diverting attention to new administrative arrangements uh, at a time when the war had started um, and was expected to be quite a short war probably was felt by the people concerned not to be the priority at that time. The priority was um, liberating neutral Belgium, which had been uh, unprovokedly uh, invaded by Germany. But... But it is clear that Home Rule was going to come into effect. Even uh, even Boner Law, the Conservative leader, said explicitly, and this is quoted in a a book by Ronan Fanning, he said explicitly, Home Rule is on the statute book and will be brought into effect. The policy of the government in the 1918 election, the British government in the 1918 election, was to implement Home Rule. It was going to come into effect one way or another. So So were were we lucky that it didn't? well, would we have been better off if we only got home room, which was limited no, I independence? Don't think so. I th- well, I think we would, but home rule would have led on to dominion status. Um, remember, once home rule came into effect, you were going to have everybody having a vote, which hadn't been the case in earlier elections. Your universal suffrage from 1918 on. I have no doubt that in, in the home rule parliament, as in the case of the home rule parliament in Scotland, a majority would have uh, taken power that would have demanded more independence. And do you think we would have had a united independent no, Ireland? I don't. I think that was that underlying problem was has been ignored by Irish nationalism. The reality is there are approximately a million people in Northern Ireland who don't want to be part of a united Ireland. And the idea that we would force them at the point of a gun, or worse still, subcontract to the British to get them to force them into a united Ireland, which seemed to be the view of some, that was totally impractical. Okay, and just to finish, do you think that the 1916 commemorations may have the effect, depending on how they are run, that radicalise is the wrong word, maybe use the word republicanise a large section of this community? Yes, that's what happened in 1966. Um, I think there was a direct connection between the 1966 commemoration and the resurgence of, of IRA activity three years later. Um, just as I think there was a direct connection between 1916 and the Civil War because the absolutist nature of the proclamation made any compromise um, unacceptable to a significant number of people whose uh, colleagues had died in the War of Independence. And that's that's been the problem. I think by postulating absolutes, you make compromise difficult. And I believe in compromise. That's the theme of my book, Faith in Politics, and politics involves compromise. So what do you anticipate will be the consequences of the 2016 commemorations? I'm not a prophet, I don't know, but I I think it's important that people who who take a different view and who say, well, maybe there was another way uh, should get the sort of hearing that I'm getting from you. Thank you. John Bruton, we've gone way over the time I'd allocated, but I've been fascinated listening to you. Former Taoiseach John Bruton is the author of Faith in Politics. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Thank you. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.